you know, you got to think what is what's going to be around for the next 10 years. Think, look at it from that direction. And, um, you know, and especially if your net worth is under one to two million dollars, you can't play the game of just sitting on the sidelines. You have to kind of deploy. It's no secret that real estate is one of the best investment vehicles out there. But how can we determine which strategies will best align with our financial ambitions? Well, you've come to the right spot. Whether you're an active real estate entrepreneur, a passive investor, or looking to get into real estate investing, our goal is to provide investors with insights and strategies for building our portfolios all while protecting our capital. I'm Daniel Nichols, and this is the Two Smart Assets Real Estate Investing Podcast. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Daniel, accompanied by our guest for the week, Lane. And today we are the two smart assets. For those not yet familiar with Lane, he's a real estate investor with over a decade of experience and controls over 10,000 units. Lane is also the owner of simplepassivecashflow.com, where he guides accredited and sophisticated investors who are looking for diversification and better returns outside of traditional investments. Lane, my man, it is great to see you. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Aloha, everybody. Yep. Pumped to have you on the show, man. I know we're going to dive into a great conversation today. But before we do that, tell us more about your background and how you initially got into real estate, man. Yeah. So I kind of got brought up on this linear path of go to school, study hard, buy a house to live in. You know, so I got maybe brainwashed to be an engineer, started <laughs> to go through college, went to school here in University of Washington and started to work for the men. And like my first day at work, I was like, man, this sucks. Right. Like. I mean, like, who likes their first job right out of college? For real, right? yeah. You, know, you kind of get stuck with the worst jobs. Um, but I, you know, I was still working hard to save my money. I was able to save, you know, thirty, forty thousand dollars a year to buy my first house to live in. And because I was traveling all over for work, I was like only home on Saturday. So I was like, this is kind of silly, right? To have this big, you know, asset not really doing anything. So I just started to rent it out. And this is back in 2009, 10. Okay. And I okay. was like, wow, like this, if I just did this handful or more times, I'll be able to quit my day job. And, you know, I mean, it was cool having some cash flow, right? It, was, it wasn't much, but that was kind of where this all started and just buying more and more properties, eventually buying, you know, 11 turnkey rentals Holy um, out of state. Um, that was like 2015. And then, you know, going into the syndications apartments after that. Yeah, you definitely uh, scaled, ra- you know, this, you know, rapidly, but then also uh, uh, massively, right? You went from, you know, having some turkey rentals and now syndications over 10,000 units. That's huge, right? So let's let's rewind a little bit, though. You know, you're a busy guy, you're a W2, uh, you're an engineer, you know, you got a full-time job. And so you bought this property and you decided to turn it into an investment property. Um was the strategy the whole time at that point to stay as passive as possible while you work in your job? Or were you looking to also be, you know, just was the, the goal always to be active? I mean, I was, it was passive for a really, really long time, like six, seven, maybe even eight years for starting out. Um, wow. So I bought that first one start, and then bought a duplex in Seattle too. And then that was like 2012 where prices started to come up and I was like, wait, I'm not cash flowing anymore, right? And then that was kind of where, where I learned, well, yeah, you dummy, you don't buy properties in primary markets where there's mm. too much competition by amateurs. So that was kind of where I went out of state for those turnkeys, um, bought five in Atlanta, four in Birmingham, one in Indy, one in Pennsylvania, and then started to play that game for a little bit better rent-to-value ratios. But still, even, even through that, all the way to 2015, I was essentially passive, right? I was able to do this, even with 11 rentals, 
you know, it took up maybe a couple hours, you know, or, or a phone call here, a phone call here during the week, maybe a couple hours on the weekends, but it's pretty passive. I mean, a lot of that, I probably was just staring at stupid spreadsheets I made to entertain myself. It was more fun <laughs> than, than any, than work, you know, at that point. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, you know, and, you know, we don't, we haven't talked actually a lot about the turnkey model on, uh, on the show. So I'm interested, you know, did that work out? For, I mean, at the time you said it was passive, it was working out for you, but you eventually decided to transition out of that and go into syndications, all that kind of good stuff. Were there any challenges you ran into with the, uh, with the turnkey model that you can maybe share with us? Yeah. I mean, it's not the best thing, but like, if you're a non-accredited investor to me, I, I think like under half a million dollars net worth. Dude, you gotta buy little rental properties. Like, mm. I mean, like, what a what invest what lead operator would want investors putting in more than 20 percent of their investment in fifty grand in one deal? Like, that's absurd, right? And then, um, so you got to start somewhere. And and as much as you know, I complain, and and when I started to get around other accredited investors, they were all dumping their rental properties. But as I'm writing in my next book. Right, like there's specific um, levels to this wealth building journey. Right, when you're in debt and doing this stuff, you follow the Dave Ramsey, Susie Orman stuff. Sure. And then there's kind of this first floors um, getting started level where I was at. Right, you buy little rental properties. You don't have enough money to get into syndication deals as a passive investor, and you may or may not have the aptitude to be an active partner that that way. What do you do? Well, you, you do it exactly what I did. You buy rental property and you slowly scale up from there. Um, but, you know, when your net worth get, gets to be half a mil, million, or certainly if you make over $200,000 a year, to me, I think your time is a little bit more spent at your day job because you're likely to get more and more, you know, pay there. Um, this is how typically most of my folks are are at, right? Like their hourly rate is higher than what they would be doing dicking around with a bunch of properties or doing <laughs> yeah. the first strategy yeah um so at that point that's when you transition and you know at that point i sold off all my rental properties um you know you asked for like a specific thing like the turnkey rentals they're cool um it's a little bit harder these days because the prices went up these last several years but i'm sure, sure. it can still work but there's nothing turnkey about it i mean you get a professional property manager in there but still you're with 11 properties, you know, like you're going to have issues that pop up and maybe an eviction or two every year, some kind of big catastrophe that happens every quarter, all for what? Like, you know, at a few hundred dollars of cash flow per property, that's like three grand. Like most of my clients want 15 to $25,000 a month. So yeah, you're going to have to like 3X, 4X those numbers at the very least. And it just, you quickly realize it becomes unscalable. And the biggest thing for a credit investors when your net worth goes over a million dollars is legal liability. Mm. Right? And and when you're broke, nobody wants to sue you, right? But once you <laughs> yeah. get like a million bucks, you know, all those dozens of properties becomes huge, huge liability, which is why that, that there's a pretty swift tra trans transition into being an LP, a passive partner at that point. Yep. Absolutely. You know, there's a lot of, I think like I said, there's, there's different strategies, right? And there's different seasons you, you encounter as you're an investor, right? And so this happened to you. And I kind of want to touch on that a little bit. You know, at some point you decided to get into syndication. You said you dumped all your 11 properties, your turnkeys, and you moved into uh, being a syndicator. Walk us through that process. You know, what was that decision like? Uh, you know, how did it go? And then what did you learn from, you know, making that transition? Was it a smooth transition or did you, you know, have some speed bumps along the way? 
Well, I paid for one of these like ridiculous groups you pay arm and a leg and where most people aren't successful. But what I did learn was how to underwrite deals. Mm. Um, although, you know, you could probably learn it on YouTube, I'm sure how to do it and not have to pay thousands and thousands <laughs> of dollars. But I did everything I was supposed to, you know, kiss ass to brokers and doing all this stuff. But I realized that I mean, it took me two years and underwriting like maybe a, a deal or two a week, it would, you know, maybe like a consistent hour or two every single week on wow. this thing that didn't go anywhere. I mean, not much time, but like when you compound it month after month for a couple of years, it's a lot of time dedicated to this stuff. And when you're not getting any traction and the truth is the people who join these types of groups, only one to two people are ever successful right? doing them. And Part of it is luck, right? Because think about it. The brokers don't want to give some newbie a good deal because for the brokers, they just want the deal to close. And if you haven't closed multiple hundred something plus properties, you're not going to get the shot at all. And that was kind of where I was like, well, I know how to underwrite these deals. Let me just kind of fall back and just being a you know, more sophisticated passive investor and picking the jockeys. But most importantly, you know, I was able to underwrite the numbers. You know, I think mm. there's somewhat of a sentiment out there in podcast land and YouTube land. It's like, hey, trust the jockey. Like, well, maybe they, I think they say that because most passive investors don't have a freaking clue of what how to underwrite the deal. I mean, nobody gets rent rolls. Nobody gets like P&Ls. What, what the heck are people looking at, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Um, but that makes sense. Like that, all that stuff is outside the scope of a passive investor, in my opinion. And therefore, the only thing that they have is betting on the jockey, right? But I was kind of in this this mode where I could take the data and underwrite it for myself and think for myself. So that was kind of my kind of unfair advantage at that point. Um, so I would have been a past investor and I would have been very happy. I, I At the time, I was in my mid-30s and I figure, well, by the time I'm in, in my mid-40s and I would be financially free at end game level or, or definitely on the path to end game, which I define at four to $5 million network mm. where you can kind of rest on your laurels. You actually get out of alternative investments and you go back to the traditional investments because you quite frankly, don't need to make more than eight to 10% a year in your investments at that right. point. So that's what I did. However, I had started like that simple passive cash flow podcast back in 2016 and at the time, we were teaching people how to buy little rental properties. Okay. So there was quite a bit of audience there. And, you know, exactly kind of what I mentioned earlier, my heart wasn't in the turnkeys because I was like, man, this stuff kind of sucks, right? And I was <laughs> yeah. transitioning. Um, don't get me wrong, right? If, if the person listening out sure. there is <laughs> under half a million dollars net worth, you're broke, dude. You know, you buy some turnkeys. Yeah. Right? But for the adults listening at this point who are accredited investors, you know, it, there's something different and we were transitioning and a lot of people just kind of wanted to follow deals that I went into and they trusted me. And that was kind of the start of the syndication group back then in 2017, 18. Um, we kind of got more established doing that. Um, and that was the decision I made at the time, well before kind of anybody got started doing any of this, this type of stuff back then. Um but then, yeah, you know, we went to deals and as you guys, this is a hard part of being a passive investor. Everybody has a platform these days. It's really hard to determine who's a fake it to make it and who's somebody who's legit. Um, 
And yeah, you can kind of look at their portfolio and see, well, you know, today we have like $2.1 billion of assets, but how do you, how do you know if I'm lying or not? Right. Like it's really, yeah, exactly. really hard. This is, this is the wild, wild west, the private placement world. And the keyword is private. Everything is private. It's hard to verify track record and experience. And when I first started out doing this, I invested like one of five deals I or people I invested were either a shyster st stole money or just somebody who was just a fake it to make it. I mean, everything was right. I don't think they were stealing money, but they're just incompetent. They they couldn't execute. And this is all in a good market, right? Right. And this is, I mean, it wasn't a high amount, but imagine if you're putting up a hundred grand and in, into five of these deals is it acceptable to lose a hundred grand out of 500? I, I didn't think so either. So that was kind of where we kind of started more on the operation side. Cause quite frankly, I didn't trust people after I got burned a few times doing this. Yeah. And it only takes, you said it really only takes once, right? Until you like, well, hopefully until people learn well, the lesson. Took me, it took me three times. So like, <laughs> okay. shoot, like I got to learn a lesson. I mean, that's how I learned, right? By making mistakes. Well, and so that's, you know, you brought up a good point earlier. It's like, hey, you had a background in underwriting. You knew how to underwrite these deals. Most passive investors don't. I made that mistake. My first passive investment, you know, I thought I was like, okay, I've done all this research, read all these books, gone to conferences, talked to, you know, thousands of people or whatever. And I was like, I'm good to go. But the truth was, you know, I was still relying on the jockey. I mean, like you said earlier, right? It's, it's pretty common. And so, you know, you mentioned you had a background in in underwriting and all that kind of stuff. So do you have any tips for maybe uh, past investors out there who are listening right now to help them kind of identify um, the right sponsor they should be partnering with? Because I, I know, like you said, it can be difficult. They're private placements, but there's got to be some way to be able to like actually look at something and establish some credibility out there. Yeah, I mean... I'll give the golden rule at the end here, but like if people want some tangible things, if people never leave their house, the best they have is to kind of learn how some of like, if you're buying a car, right? Like there's certain things you can spot check under the hood. I would probably say the biggest one is the reversion cap rate. That's the biggest mm. thing that, that people will fudge. Normally you want to be conservative. So you assume that you're selling it in a softer market. So you want to see that cap rate expand by half a percent. You know, when, when we first started, we would expand it by a full point. But okay. if everybody and their mother out there you're competing with is being a bonehead and not doing it at all, you you know, we have to kind of come down from that full point of, of being conservative. So that's kind of the first one, right? You know, yeah, some people might make the argument that, hey, we're making this a class B into an A minus asset. Therefore, the reversion cap rate stays the same because you're changing the classes. Uh, you know, I mean, that's where sure. you as the events investor have to see if you buy that or not. Um, the next thing that it might be easy for investors to spot check is like, what is the escalator that they're using on the annual expenses and, and income? So you could ask it or you can figure out yourself with a little bit of arithmetic, right? Sure. You always see that chart with the top line income, you know, this year, next year, and then maybe for the next few years, see what the annual escalator is. Just take that next year's one minus this year's one divided by what this one is year. It usually ranges from 1% to 5%. If it's something higher than 2%, mm, might be a little bit of a head scratcher right there, you know? Yep. Um, and then just off the top of my head, like occupancy. If they think that you'll be operating the property at 95% occupancy with only 3% economic vacancy, so economic occupancy of 92%, I think, I took that example, right? 
I don't know. I, 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 that might be a little bit overzealous, right? right. Um, if, if people know what I'm talking about, go to Bigger Pockets and look at everybody's like performa that they put into that cool spreadsheet that makes the, looks like the graph going like this, right? Everybody's doing it like really unconservative and very optimistic. But you know, I I don't know if that it, those those basic three things are in the scope of a passive investor, right? Most people don't they're not given any of this data when you're looking at a pitch deck. Typically more experienced institutional firms give investors absolutely none of this information. It's just a bunch of pictures. Newer operators who haven't built a track record yet, which you may not want to invest with, will give you all this information. Mm. So this is kind of that spectrum I talk with my guys about like, hey, there's institutional operators, that you're going to have higher fees, higher splits, and no information to do your due diligence on. And then there's complete newbies who look like institutions, and then there's people in the middle. And there's if you're confused, you should be, because this is the quantum, right? <laughs> like The only way to decode who's legit in this world is to build relationships with other purely passive accredited investors. The trouble is, these guys are not at the local real estate club because that's just a bunch of broke guys trying to flip houses. Right. You'll be lucky to find a turnkey buyer who's looking to invest out of state. You're looking for purely passive credit investors, like I said, and they're not at these like so-called conferences out there. Mm -hmm. Those are just the active broke general partner guys trying to make it, right? Yep. Where do you find these guys? Like, these, well, I'll tell you, these guys are normally in their 40s. They have families. They're making multiple six figures. They're super busy too, right? And they have their networks, um, and this is why it's very hard. And, and I'm not—I don't know where to find them, to be honest. But I can—I'm kind of giving people some insights on where not to waste your time. Yep, so, and that's th those are good insights, man. I appreciate you sharing that because I think there's there's a lot of value in that, right? And understanding who you're targeting if you're trying to you know go after investors or raise capital or whatever. If you're a syndicator, I think that's that's a immensely valuable. I do have a question though, and I don't mean to take this, you know, and kind of slam it to left field here, but I got a question. You know, you mentioned outgoing cap rates, right? And so I know we're in the kind of a different market. You said, you know, back in the day, you might do 1%, uh, you know, uh, 100 bips or whatever, you know, and then uh, now you see, you know, half a point or whatever. What does that look like today in today's market? You know, you, you guys are boots on the ground. You're obviously active, very active. What does it look like in today's market? Well, I mean, normally you take it off of the prevailing cap rate, right? So it doesn't really matter what that property is. I think that's a big misnomer. You take it off of like if you're buying a class B asset, right? And say the, I don't know what, I mean, every every market is a little bit different. Sure. Let's say it's like a, it's performing at a six cap, right? You found a great deal, whoop de do for you. But that doesn't matter. What I'm seeing is the prevailing cap, right? What are class B assets in that submarket, in that kind of vintage selling for? Say they're normally selling for four, right? So you, you know, if you see the reversion cap rate, you probably want to build it for 4.5%. Gotcha. But the problem, I think what you're kind of getting at is like, all right, we're in this kind of the last year, things are kind of, ridiculous right with interest rates high and it's kind of made cap rates um change quite a bit mm -hmm. so and i don't know how to answer that question because like we haven't really been doing deals as of last yeah, summer yeah interest rates gone up so um i can tell you off in theory right but let's I hear it really forced to really like yeah put my own skin in the game on like what i'm gonna do there but you know i 
I I say right now, like it's just crazy times and it will go away probably in the next six months to 18 months. So may I mean, I don't know if this is prudent or not, but it seems logical for someone to say, well, where we were at the peak, maybe bring it down where it was six months later, you know, maybe take the cap rates right before that and say that's level because maybe, maybe this will make more sense. Like the analogy is kind of like you're going up and down in a storm on mm -hmm. a boat, right? Normally it's like it, the, the waves aren't as high as it is now, right now our ass is pointing in the sky and our face <laughs> is right in that water. Yeah. And normally you want to like, when I'm saying like increase the version cap rate a little bit, normally it's like this and bring it up yep. a little bit. Right now your, your ass is in the sky right now. And you are like <laughs> almost like looking straight down at the bottom of the ocean. Yep. You can't tell me that increasing it by half a point is conservative yep. or you know it'll level out too, right? At some point. Sure. So I don't know, guys, like it's hard to say. Right. And it's like for this is where passive investors somehow they they, they think in terms of black and white, but good passive investor needs to take everything with a grain of salt, look things in the gray and, you know, not just think like dogmatically. Lane told me that I should increase their version cap rate <laughs> all times. Right. If, if you did that now, you wouldn't be investing in anything. Right. Look at the big picture, folks. This is yep. probably the best time to be investing because the the prices came down, tumbling down 10, 20% off the highs. This is the time they get in. Is it all the, the doom and gloomers of people who like type in internet forms all day long on why the world's going to end? Those are the guys who never, I mean, like, I wish you could see what their real net worth was, right? Like. <laughs> There's a lot of that out there right now, though. You know, a lot of doom and gloom. I mean, it's everywhere, right? I mean, if you spend any time on social media, it's pretty much all that you're seeing. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, doom and gloom sells, right? It's fear porn. It attracts it, attention. And I does. think that's what a lot of people are trying to do. But this is the time where you need to look more like, what is it that you're investing in? And is it going to be like in demand and popular in five to 10 years? Yep. Like I, totally. I like multifamily workforce housing, still do. And the way I look at demographics, especially in the lower middle class, I mean, right now there's a lot of class A inventory flooding the market. I suspect that goes away in about six months because two years ago was kind of when the interest rates started to creep up. And that's mm. where I think developers will actually, I mean, we could probably verify this by data, right? But um, we develop also and, and we kind of felt the kind of wind in taking out of people's sales as of quarter four 2021 so if you fast forward two years which is typically how long it takes to develop an asset mm. from ground up and that's you know quarter four 2023 right? mm -hmm. so that's about now um then th then that new supply stops coming online but you know more and more people need to live in places to live in you know like i mean apparently people i don't have student loans i paid all mines off but apparently people like have to start paying their student loans off yeah. here, I think. And then I don't watch the news. I don't watch the news on that kind of stuff. So I don't know, but who knows, right? Maybe, maybe little Johnny who went to college when he shouldn't have gone to college now is, you know, he's living in that nice, cool one bedroom apartment for $1,600 a month, the luxury apartment. Now he has $500 less a month of discretionary income and he can mm -hmm. only afford $1,200 a month. Well, guess what, buddy? We got vacancies. You want to come and live in our class B apartments? You know, like 
there you I go. think that's a good place to be in. Um, I don't think short-term rentals is a very safe place as a discretionary kind of line, line item, but I think that at the end of the day, you know, you got to think what is, what's going to be around for the next 10, 10 years. Think, look at it from that direction. And, um, you know, and especially if your net worth is under one or $2 million, you can't play the game of just sitting on the sideline. You have to kind of deploy. I totally agree, man. You can't win if you don't play. Right. And so, uh, you gotta be in the game and man, I love your insight. There's a lot of good stuff there. I know listeners are going to take a lot of information out of there and be able to apply it to to their own strategies and stuff like that. But man, this has been a great conversation. Before we get out of here, Lane, tell the listeners more about simplepassivecashflow.com, anything else you guys got going on and how they can get a hold of you. Yeah, they can check out the on the website, simplepassivecashflow.com. Um, email us, lane at simplepassivecashflow.com. And, you know, my new book, The Wealth Elevator, I kind of talk about like the transition between you know, once you get to what, two and a half million net worth and that four to five end game, and then what's what's beyond there, um, you know, real estate's a great way to concentrate your wealth and you need concentration to get unbroke above a million, two million dollars. But, you know, I think if you're kind of, like you said earlier, if you're sitting on the sidelines, not doing anything and you're not, your net worth is not two, three, four million dollars, you, you're playing the game to lose, you know, you're mm. not playing the game or... I don't know, whatever it is, you know, net worth don't lie at the end of the day, right? Like the people who are able to sit on the sidelines at this point are all end game four or five mil plus. Right. Yeah, man, makes sense. And, uh, you know, we're going to make sure to put all that stuff in the show notes, the links, the stuff that's on our list, because reach out, find out more about what you got going on and uh, check out your resources. But man, Lane, this has been a great conversation, man. Really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. Yeah, thanks everybody. Hey, real quick before we get out of here, do me a huge favor and leave a rating and review for the podcast. We're always looking to bring you guys the best insights and strategies for building our real estate portfolios and your ratings and reviews really help with getting top guest speakers that are the best in the real estate investing business. I promise this will only take you a few seconds and I'd really appreciate it. Thanks for being awesome, guys. Cheers.